Welcome back to another powerful episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bear, founder and CEO of Bear Performance Nutrition. Every week, we bring you insightful stories, knowledge, and inspiration to help you reach your full potential in life, fitness, and business. If you enjoy the message we're promoting in this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes that embody the Go One More mindset. Today on the podcast, we have Holly Baxter. Holly, what's going on? Not too much. I'm fed. I'm ready to go. <laughs> how's, how's Austin treating you so far? Austin has been amazing. I was so surprised at the greenery uh, and how mountainous and hilly it was. I think being in Florida for such a long time, you just kind of start to think that that's how all of the country is. So yeah. it was a really nice surprise. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I think... Most people, when they think of Texas, they think of like Western movies and just desert. Yeah. But like here in central Texas, we're in the hill country. Mm-hmm. You get hit with so many different pieces of terrain. Mm-hmm. As I was telling you and Lane earlier, I took some of my team out for a 10 mile trail run Wednesday morning. And parts of those trail runs, you feel like you're in Colorado. Like you wouldn't know you were in Texas. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, <laughs> I was probably expecting to see more cacti, but I, I haven't seen one yet. <laughs> you'll see them like randomly. It's, it's crazy because you'll see a cactus right next to a palm tree mm. in certain parts of like the Austin area. Mm-hmm. So you get a little bit of everything, which is one of the best parts about it. Mm. That would be interesting. <laughs> and I saw you guys went to, to dinner last night with uh, Zach Rochelow. Yeah, we did. We've um, uh, It was interesting how we connected. Zach and I actually did a collaboration together um, several years ago, um, when I was a little bit more kind of focused on, I guess, the food, you know, macro accounting, that type of thing, um, I was writing a couple of books and some of his work was kind of what stemmed my motivation to keep doing more fun, creative recipes. So, yeah, we've been friends with Zach Rochelleau now for probably about five years. And it's the first time in that uh, time span we've actually been to Austin uh, he's been out to visit us so many times. So it's actually cool to come and meet him in his hometown. So, yeah. So I understand that we share a lot of similarities between, well, nutrition and training, uh, our love for music and singing. One of <laughs> us can actually sing. One of us can actually not. And that's <laughs> me. Uh, emo music, hardcore music, uh, eating disorders, unhealthy relationships with food. Mm-hmm. I would love to to kind of take it back and talk about how you got into nutrition mm-hmm. and what sparked that interest. Because I believe we have pretty similar trajectories and histories in terms of what led us to finding passion behind nutrition. So I'd love to hear from you, like, what was it that sparked the interest in nutrition? Yeah, so I think growing up, we were pretty active. My sister and I were put in basically every sport I think our mom could fine for us at the time. And uh, we were very competitive, um, very hard workers, very disciplined, I guess, at what we did. Um, And it's interesting how, you know, your childhood behaviors and the people that are role models to you in your life um, influence so much of our adulthood and the behaviors and habits that we form. So, Um, you know, being very competitive, grew up, uh, got to the age of, you know, needing to make some pretty big decisions about a career. 
And, you know, being a female growing up in Australia, there, there wasn't really a whole lot of options for sport or anything like athletic. So I was also very academic, very studious, and I just made the decision to, okay, we'll go into the nutrition route or the medical route. Um, and yeah, I just decided, well, I've had this lifetime of experience, you know, in activity and, you know, focusing on health and well-being. Let's go and do, you know, a food science uh, and nutrition uh, bachelor's degree. So that was kind of my first point into, uh, I guess, the field that I work in now. And I think like most people, when you finish your bachelor's, you have zero knowledge <laughs> at the end of it, or you feel like you're just stuck in this place where there's so many things that you still need to learn. So uh, I went back and did my master's uh, in dietetics. And it was when I kind of moved away from clinical practice uh, into my own private practice where I started uh, working with kind of the population that I really wanted to work with, which was, you know, people that are, um, you know, professional level athletes um, and that are genuinely like interested in making change to their, you know, to their health through diet and exercise. Um, so to get into the, the sport of bodybuilding, um, it was such a huge leap because I knew nothing about bodybuilding. I didn't grow up, you know, on the forums like a lot of you guys uh, have done in an experience. And that was kind of the introduction to, to building muscle. Um, mine was always like athletics and sprinting and you know, watching basketball on the TV. So, so it's like performance based rather than absolutely. Physique. I I don't think I even knew if someone said, "Do you know what a bodybuilder was?" Like when I was I don't know, fifteen years old, I don't think that I would have really understood the concept. So yeah, I had a couple of clients at the time that I was um, preparing their nutrition intervention to kind of get them to stage, and um, one of the girls was like, "You know, I think that you would really enjoy this sport." you're in great shape, you're pretty much like there already, um, would you consider competing? So I had a look into where the the next like world championships was, obviously as the competitive person that I was, I was like, I'm not just going to do this for fun. Um, if I'm going to commit to it, I want to go to the top. So uh, that year, the world championships were in Dubai. And that was one of the places on my bucket list that I really wanted to visit. So I kind of looked at, right, this is what I would have to do to get there. Wow, that's a lot of work. I had to win like a state show, a national, a national show, and then, you know, pop on over to Dubai. And I actually was able to do that. So um, through uh, a lot of, I guess, uh, education as my background and kind of applying what I knew, um, that, got, that got me to, to competing at the World Championships. And that was my first win uh, at an international level. So that was a natural drug-free bodybuilding federation called the IMBA or the PMBA. Um, and it just kind of carried on from there. So uh, I kind of played around with some of the different uh, federations to find one that best suited my physique. Um, I was already a little bit too muscular to uh, be in like the bikini division uh, back in 2015. So when I started seeing what the figure girls looked like in the IFBB, I also was like, hmm, I don't know whether I want to look like that, you know, and it's it's a lot of work. So I found myself uh, in 2018 competing with the organization called the WBFF. Um, to me, the best way that I can describe this for people that have no idea what it is, is almost like a Victoria's Secret pageant 
cross with a pageant with bodybuilders. Mm. <laughs> so it's a really interesting concept, but you get to have a lot more fun with it. Um, there's no like choreographed routines that the girls have to do. Um, you get to kind of express your own preferences for all the posing styles. And honestly, that's great because you can pick posing that really enhances your physique. Um, you're not kind of pinned into, you know, particular front double bicep or what have you. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of where I've been for the last uh, five or six years. Uh, I recently had world championships um, in Vegas. So that was three weeks ago now. And uh, I'm not sure whether I'm going to retire, but uh, you never know. <laughs> Do you feel night and day different now as opposed to three weeks ago when you were in your peak of competing? Yeah, absolutely. But I will say, so I took a very calculated risk uh, for this show uh, and that was to come in a little bit softer. And that was on the preface that um, several weeks ago, uh, I was, uh, I guess, listening to uh, one of the uh, the sp uh, speeches from the organisation owners and they were quite concerned about the health of a lot of the athletes, not in their federation, but expressing concern for what they're seeing in others. And there have been several instances, um, you know, where bodybuilders are, you know, they're dying because they're, you know, taking so many steroids, they've got really unsafe practices. Um, and some of the bikini competitors as well, very recently, um, there's been a couple of deaths uh, and some extreme uh, illness. Uh, even amongst the women. So they kind of alluded to the fact that they they really do care. And I think, you know, particularly um, uh, Alison Dillett, who's the um, organisation vice president, um, she's got two girls. Um, you know, they're very young and I think, you know, part of her probably is very worried for the health of her girls, you know, when they're growing up kind of seeing these, you know, shredded women on the stage. So... Um, the result was I didn't place uh, top three. I got fourth this year, which is actually uh, worse than the previous year. But uh, that really aligned with me. And I think the direction that I have come from when I first kind of stepped foot into the bodybuilding industry uh, to where I am now, I am so much farther on the side of, um, you know, efficacious practices, making sure that, you know, health is the priority and how healthy are you, not just physically, but uh, from a psychological standpoint, because so many people, uh, in my opinion, and I think the research would probably support this, um, is that they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And it can actually lead to some serious negative health consequences down the line uh, if it's not addressed. So I aligned with that federation. It's frustrating that I didn't place, but um, I'm really happy with how that whole process was because it was the easiest prep that I have ever done. And part of that is because I have spent the last three or four years uh, very intentionally working on recovering from a 15-year-long eating disorder and it was ruining my life. So lots of shifts in um, my space and I think it's kind of reflective now in the work that I'm doing um, with my own clients, within our companies, our different businesses, uh, and then what I portray to my social media following and audience as well. I definitely want to touch on that throughout this episode. <laughs> to take it back a little bit, when what year did you graduate uh, with your bachelor's? Goodness, I hate these questions. I'm the worst at remembering dates. I think it was 2000 and, ooh, I'm going to say eight. No, it would be 2010. Okay. <laughs> I graduated with a, a bachelor's of nutrition in 2013. Yep. And our main focus 
at you know at my university was cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Yep. Clinical. And uh, that's one thing. Like when I went to college, I went to study nutrition because I love nutrition mm-hmm. for performance and and training and like my expectations of going to college and learning about nutrition wasn't necessarily the clinical intervention. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of disappointed when I went to school because I knew it was setting a lot of people up to be registered dietitians mm-hmm. for that master's degree afterwards. Is that is that similar for you where when you went to school, did you expect it to be clinical or were you hoping more for sports performance? Um, I think I had uh, done enough reading and uh, research that the course that I was starting was going to be a lot more clinical. So um, it didn't really feel like there was anything that was specific enough at the time to, you know, as far as like, okay, you're going to come out with this degree that's going to be like sporting performance. There wasn't anything like that available. They had exercise science, but, you know, then again, I was very focused on athletics specifically. And I knew that I was going to have to, if I went down the route of doing an exercise science degree, you're going to be covering everything. So I was definitely more interested from the nutrition perspective, but I will say by the time I actually, um, I guess, applied for the food science nutrition uh, undergraduate, I was already like heavily um, uh, influenced by my disorder. So at that point, I'd already been struggling with, uh, I had had anorexia for about eight months um, in my, I guess, last couple of years of college, which to you guys, that is um, year 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it had kind of developed into binge eating disorder and bulimia as well. So my choices to do nutrition, uh, I think were already skewed. Um, But I did, I did have the understanding it was going to be a lot more clinical, but it was still a means or a way for me to know more about how I can control this for me and my performance. Right. What, what do you think started the, the reasoning for the eating disorder? Because mm-hmm. people ask me that question all the time. And I think it's a hard question to answer because you can't necessarily pinpoint it, but can you try to paint a picture of what you think created it? Yeah, it's, um, I honestly, I never gave it any thought. I think probably for 10 years of my adult life, I didn't do enough, um, you know, self-reflection to, to really have a solid understanding. And it wasn't until I'd kind of progressed in my career enough where I felt really comfortable doing what I was doing um, and that I knew enough to be able to switch focus for a moment and start looking into Um, you know, psychology, mental health, um, reading about self-development, looking at, you know, brain neuroplasticity and all of the the psychological influences that I started having to look in. And through that, um, I guess, three-year experience or journey uh, where I was working uh, full-time pretty much every week, I had an appointment with a therapist who specialised in working with um, disordered eating and eating disorders that we started to kind of unpack things throughout my um, throughout my life, and it all actually started from probably a pretty young age. Uh, just like I was saying earlier, the influences in your life, the people that we view as um, you know mentors, people that we really uh, respect, uh, how do they behave towards us? You know, what are they telling us? Um, because that kind of showed itself in how I, you know, acted and behaved and responded to, you know, the the life that was happening around me. 
And I think there was quite a few, um, I guess, traumatic experiences that I had when I was young, like a a young teenage girl um, that definitely kind of put me in this space where um, I didn't really know who to go to 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 talk. I didn't have a great relationship with my mum, despite her being, you know, a very caring uh, woman, someone that wanted, you know, the absolute best for her kids. Um, But she, I think, struggled herself with confidence and, um, you know, her identity and her value as a, a human. And I think because of her struggles as a, as a girl, she kind of, the only way that my sister and I felt like we were worthy or we were enough or like valuable people was through performance or through our accolades. Like um, it was not a conditional love. It was conditional to how well you do at school, how well you did in your sporting um, uh, achievements and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So I think outcome-based? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I kind of grew up then was that I have to perform um, in order to feel, you know, praise. And then as my life seemingly felt like it was getting out of control as a, uh, uh, I guess, a 16, 15-year-old, Um, The only thing that I had control over uh, at that point was what I ate. It was like every other uh, like facet of my life was being controlled by my mother or my parents, um, by my coaches, you know, at sport, by my teachers. I just felt like I had, you know, I had no say in the matter. So I think needing or having a feeling or the need for control was probably one part of that uh, combined with um, trauma. And then when I was uh, working under um, one of the Australian coaches, um, his name was uh, Peter Fortune. Uh, he was actually um, our Olympic 400 meter uh, track sprinter, Kathy Freeman. Um, she'd won the gold medal uh, at the Olympics in 2000 and everybody knew who she was and, and he was her coach. And I was actually uh, in the TIS, which was the Tasmanian Institute of Sport at the time. And I was working under his care. And he would always compare me to Kathy. She was many years older than me at the time. Um, and he would always compliment her, you know, physique. You know, she's very powerful. She's very muscular. Uh, you need to be more like Kathy. And I was by no means like overweight or, you know, unhealthy. But he would comment on, you know, if you have less body fat, you know, that just slows you down. Um, if you get more muscle, you know, that's going to help you with your power and you'll be a better, you know, sprinter overall. And I think at some point during that kind of phase of my life, um, it just became, um, you know, that was my eating disorder. That's what the feelings that I had were coming out and expressing as the the disorder. So, yeah, I think uh, it was a combination of all of those things and, it, it, it was never addressed like from there from there on it just it stuck with me I never did any work uh, on my mindset to to fix it control was probably like the best way to describe it mm-hmm. when when people ask me what they think caused mine I always say control mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know what I was trying to control but I wanted to be in control of something mm-hmm. and it was one of those things that I could control what I was putting in my mouth and what I was eating mm-hmm. I could control the way the scale was trending down mm-hmm. and it provided a lot of like power mm-hmm. in that sense, which is a, a very weird 
way to describe it, but mm-hmm. it's really the only way I can. How fast did yours kind of get out of control? Like what, what were some of the extremes that you reached? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I actually was hospitalized for uh, attempted suicide twice. Uh, I was in a really bad place when I was really young. Um, and that kind of led me to getting extremely, extremely thin. But I think it quickly kind of became binge eating disorder and bulimia thereafter because it just didn't feel with the amount of sport that I was doing. Uh, and I was training like five or six times a week as a, a kid back then, plus school and everything else that you do. Um, like being anorexic just didn't work for for so many reasons. I think I was just really struggling to kind of keep it all together. So, um, yeah, that was a really tough time for me, um, you know, having depression, not having any good, uh, you know, outlets or resources or, you know, people or adults in my life that um, I respected to even, you know, get helped and, you know, find a solution or how do I get out of this? And it stuck around, like, at least the heavy depression for about two years. Um, and I think the only thing that really kind of kept me going was there's got to be something else out there. Like, I think from a very young age, I I knew that I wasn't going to stay in Tasmania, which is the, the location that I, I kind of lived and was raised. I just wanted to know what else is out there. There must be something that I'm missing. Like, part of me, it was like I felt I... I don't know, there was just this gaping big hole and a void that I needed to find. And I think it was like my search for happiness. So for 15 years, the disorder continued, but I continued to kind of search and look and try and find like, oh, you know, this, it'll, it'll go away if I, you know, find these people or it will disappear when I can just be, you know, at this level of leanness and then I'll be able to find happiness. So... It's been such a roller coaster. I feel like my life could be easily <laughs> a movie based on all the strange um, uh, coincidences that have kind of come from that that experience. How long ago did you go through the full recovery? So I'd say that for the last two years, I have been. Uh, I guess I, I I wouldn't have a diagnosis for anything. So no binge eating disorder or bulimia. I guess if you look at the criteria for those to be considered a true clinical um, condition, you have to meet, you know, a certain number of times per day where you're binge eating, there is um, frequency of purging or purging through exercise. Uh, and I, I do not meet any of those criteria anymore. Uh, I wouldn't say that I have um, completely overcome the thoughts that pop into your mind, um, but through a lot of, um, you know, work with experts and then also a lot of self-help and learning and reading about it, um, my ability to recover from those negative thoughts has um, uh, improved out of sight. I'd say 95% of the time I feel like a normal human now, which is just so freeing, I think, because it was something that stuck around for forever. Yeah, so the reason I went to school for nutrition, I believe is because I had an eating disorder when I was younger, like 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And then my my relationship with food got better. Mm-hmm. But I believe like I went to school to study nutrition because there was like this very closely tied 
passion and purpose behind food in, in my life. And I knew that I, it, it would always be a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And when I actually signed up for my first bodybuilding competition and I started tracking calories and losing weight mm-hmm. again, that's when it was re-triggered. And that control factor almost got out of control again. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm always con- like very cautious of these dieting phases or what I'm doing yeah. in terms of food because I know it can be quickly triggered again. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that when you're dieting for a competition or a contest that those feelings are re-triggered? So I would say I've had uh, contest preps where, yes, absolutely, it's kind of made it worse and enhanced uh, the severity of the symptoms. Um, However, the last two years of competitions for me, um, it has been a complete breeze. And I know (laughs) I say that uh, probably out of uh, context, but uh, no competition is ever easy. But for me, uh, because I was able to kind of detach from the reason for doing the competition um, or change the why, um, it was it was much, much easier. So I, I should probably explain a little bit. I think for me getting into bodybuilding, it was almost a way to um, uh, enable my bad uh, decisions and my dysfunctional mindset. It was a way for me to, you know, be around family and friends and I had an excuse for eating, you know, very little or... Um, having strange dietary behaviours um, because, you know, it's a requirement of the sport almost. So I know that I chose bodybuilding um, because it it made it easy for me to continue those behaviours. It's like a justification. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I really wanted to, you know, be able to maintain this extremely lean physique. I truly believed that in order for me to feel... Uh, accepted, to feel valued, and particularly in an industry that is so dominated by males, um, I think for me to feel like the work that I did, um, you know, had value and that I could be taken seriously, I needed to um, not only, you know, talk the talk, but I needed to walk the walk and always walk the walk. So that's primarily why I did so many shows um, when I first started, um, but through that process of recovering, um, the why changed significantly. I was no longer attached to the physique outcome. I just focused on the process, you know, and here's what you need to execute. Here's what you need to do in order to win. Like it was still the goal to win, but I was no longer like hung up on having to maintain that physique because I had learned, you know, through the course of many years to be accepting um, of my body and who I was like without that. Um, So to go back to what you said, you know, did that um, enhance or make the disorder worse? It absolutely did when I was still mentally unwell. Um, Now that I am not, absolutely not. I still had a couple of days where, you know, you get extremely hungry. And I remember actually this last prep, my habits are, if I'm in the pantry, we've got like kids, right? So we have so many junk foods and cookies and just awesome stuff. So I've kind of gotten to the habit now where I just eat what I like and I'm very aware of my hunger cues. And I decided to do this prep and I was just standing in the pantry deciding what to eat one day and I just housed two cookies. I remember going, 
what are you doing? You've got a competition in eight weeks. It was just like that habit um, from allowing myself to do that in my off season um, kind of just, it was there. So previously, like in the disordered mindset, that would have sent me into, uh, I don't know, a place of, I'd be laying catatonic on the bed, like anxious, uh, guilt-ridden, like it would basically render me useless for probably the rest of the day. I wouldn't be able to work. It would really be hard because I'd be just thinking about it over and over and over. Um, Whereas now, like in that particular situation, I was able to go, oh, yeah, gee, that was not such a great thing, Holly. Oops, you're going to have a couple of hard days now um, to compensate or make up for that. But there was no psychological stress, you know, after maybe five seconds. It was just you cope with it, you move on, and it doesn't impact your day. So, yeah. What do you love about the process of of competing? I think just having a goal. Um, I, I honestly really struggle when I don't have something that I'm trying to progress or, um, you know, improve. I always refer to myself as like the optimizer or if you're doing something well, how can we make it better? Or if you've got something that's huge, why can't we make it bigger? So I definitely am somebody that enjoys um, improvements. So that is something that you are going to do with a sport like bodybuilding. There's always, you know, small tweaks that you can make to um, develop better symmetry. Um, You know, in powerlifting particularly, that's something that I do in my off-season. You can always get stronger. (coughs) Well, there's a certain point where you reach that genetic ceiling and your strength is going to slow down a little. But, you know, you can work towards something. Um, So, yeah, I think the process is just really fun. Um, And it's so good for my mental health. I think that was one of the things that really um, supported me during a time when I was pretty um, in a very dark place. Again, it's controlling. I have control of that. But, you know, it's also very, um, you finish a session and you feel amazing. So I remember this one time, this story keeps popping my head right now. And it's, I was dieting for my first competition. Mm-hmm. I've only done one bodybuilding show, but it was when I was in college. And what I would do the night before is I, I would know what my macros were for that next day. So I would go in my fitness pal mm-hmm. and I'd plan out my meals and I'd plug them in there. So I knew what I was having for like meal one, two, yeah. three, and four, right? And this one day I was in my college apartment and I make my, my meal. I think it was like eggs and potatoes cooked in like a little bit of coconut oil. I had it all tracked, calculated, weighed out. And I was eating half of this meal and I was walking. And my apartment in college is disgusting. I mean, it was five <laughs> guys and a thousand square feet. There was carpet on the ground that smelled like stale beer. It was, it was gross, gross. And I'm walking in the hallway with this meal and I trip and I drop half of it. Mm-hmm. I've already consumed half. Mm-hmm. And now half is spread out across the floor. I mean, like scrambled eggs on the floor. Oh, no. And my mind is going, well, I've, you know, I've tracked this. Like if I don't eat this now, my numbers are off. <laughs> and I was very controlling at this point with obsessive in a sense. So I picked up all these scrambled eggs and potatoes off the floor and put them in the bowl. And I remember eating the rest of this meal and there's like hair in this meal. Oh, like, no. It was disgusting. <laughs> but like that's how obsessive I got with, you know, this controlling aspect of food came back into my head. And I'll, I'll never forget like, 
you know, there's certain moments in life that you remember where you were, what it smelled yeah, exactly. like, what it looked. It was one of those days where even me at that point was like, I think this is a little, mm-hmm. little extreme. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know what, if you look at some of the studies um, in uh, people that are clinically di- diagnosed with uh, eating disorders or disordered eating, um, that, uh, I guess, rigidity, that obsession or fixation with numbers and uh, perfectionism, um, uh, I guess that I, uh, compulsivity, like all of those things are very common uh, characteristics of disordered eating. So, you know, people will often ask, you know, is is bodybuilding and, you know, tracking macros something that contributes to uh, eating disorders? And I usually respond with, I think it attracts those types of uh, personalities um, and those types of behaviours. And for me, it was a, a justification for the behaviours that I knew were probably um, dysfunctional. So, is something is something like bodybuilding a sport that you would want to put people in if you're already, you know, a high risk? I'd probably say no now, like in hindsight. Um, I've had people before where I might have said, okay, maybe you can kind of work through this. But I think the the reason or the why for stepping into that kind of a sport um is usually because somebody has an underpinning, you know, confidence issue. I know for me it was definitely low confidence, um, you know, not feeling valued and, um, you know, completely obsessed with your uh, physique and becoming that becomes your identity. So to feel uh, appreciated and valued and that you are a worthwhile person um, when it's not your physical exterior, like you can still feel all those things if you do the work on your mindset. Um, And I would never say to people, don't focus on diet and training, just focus on mental health. But I think that if you're going to apply yourself um, to those things, then you need to spend an equal amount of time um, working with a therapist or at least doing your own research or reading um, to help kind of bring those uh, to elements of health together. It's very interesting the way you said that word. Bodybuilding doesn't necessarily create eating disorders, but it attracts mm-hmm. that type of personality. That mm-hmm. sounds very, like, very accurate. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is a potential for the bodybuilding space to be unhealthy or is it, are there, are there more people that are unhealthy in a sense of unhealthy relationship with food than there are healthy I would say based, and this is very much anecdotal, but I'm sure that there's some kind of research out there that would say or align with my thoughts. I would say that the most unhealthy people that I have ever worked with are in the uh, physique sport um, realm or they're in a sport that requires you to modify or manipulate your body weight. So whether it's judo, boxing, um, fencing, jockeys, you know, I've worked with all those athletes, gymnasts, gymnasts, um, uh, ice hockey, ice skating, uh, sorry, ice skating, not ice hockey. Uh, Those individuals tend to have the uh, most negative, um, you know, dysfunctional minds um, that I have ever come across and incredibly distorted uh, view of themselves, um, lots of uh, body dysmorphia, Um, very negative impression of themselves. Uh, And I, you know, physically you could look at them and 
they look incredible. You know, they've got all this muscle, um, you know, they're incredibly talented um, and skilled in many ways, but their mental health is some of the worst I've ever seen. And you would never know it because a lot of these people really don't feel comfortable, you know, sharing it and, and talking about maybe the struggles that they're they're going through. I mean, it's almost like a internalised um, ideal they never share with, with anybody. Do you find it more prevalent in women than men or is it equal across the board? I think women, and the, the research does show that women are um, far more likely to suffer with eating disorders than are men, uh, but the prevalence is growing in, in males and, and it's for different reasons. I think men are far more prone to body dysmorphia because they feel like they are too small uh, and then women are just generally are far more conscientious of their physical appearance, um, whether it's their face, whether it's their body, um, but they tend to be a lot more um, focused and fixated on, you know, manipulating and changing their body as opposed to maybe changing their mindset, which could achieve the same, you know, feelings of happiness and value and worthiness. Mm. I'd love to talk about what a contest prep looks like for you. Mm-hmm. Like really dive into the everything training wise, nutrition mindset, like when it gets hard, when it gets challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, when I did my my show back in college, I remember when it hit that point of, okay, this is this is tough, this is challenging, where you have no energy, no libido. Um, you know, you stand up from your chair, you're seeing like mm-hmm. dots flashing all over the place because you're getting so lean and calories get so low. In your last couple of preps, how long in, in duration, how many weeks did they last? So my last prep was actually eight weeks uh, and I lost about 15 pounds in that process. So I was kind of riding right along the edge of what we would say is a safe um, weekly rate of weight loss. So if you look at all of the um, scientific literature, once we get beyond say 1.5% of your body weight loss per week, that's when we start to increase the risk of metabolic adaptation uh, and that's through increases in lean body mass. Uh, We start to see mitochondrial efficiency and a host of other different things. So for me, that was probably the toughest like contest prep that I've ever done from a calorie restriction um, side of things. So even though I said it was, you know, this most recent prep was really easy, I'm looking at easy in the sense of my mental health was, it was a breeze. Physically, like I had to get get going at like 1,100 calories from week one because it was a very last minute decision. So how low did it get? Uh, I st- I started at 1,100 and I finished at 1,100, but I did lose oh, wow. the 15 pounds in that eight weeks. Um, and my training didn't really have to change t- too much. I think four resistance training sessions and they're about 90 minutes to two hours. Um, and then by the end, I was doing about 60 minutes of hit like true hit training. So I'd sp- uh, spread that out into three 20-minute intervals because beyond 20 minutes for me, I'm not an endurance athlete. So my uh, performance and my output would tank. So to keep my energy expenditure nice and high, um, I would just break it up a little bit. But that that's all. And then um, I like to use step counts just as a nice way to kind of moderate my week-to-week um, energy expenditure through it's my normal job and day-to-day activities, and that's at about 12,000 steps a day. So that's what this past prep looked like, and it was 1,100 calories from the beginning, and I ended at 1,100 uh, 1, calories. So, What's the longest prep you've done? 20 weeks. I've seen people recently doing, I mean, I know 
I know there's some, especially natural competitors out mm-hmm. there that do like 30 plus week. Mm-hmm. I can understand. Reps. I can understand why they would do that too. Um, if somebody has a significant percentage of body fat to lose for a prep, I too would want to spread it out. And again, knowing what we know about, um, you know, the potential to lose lean body mass in a contest prep, um, we don't want to be losing at a rate greater than that one and a half percent in a single week. So in order to facilitate that, if you do have, you know, more than 10% of your body weight to lose to be competitive in that division, you'd want to like do some calculations on the front end to determine how many weeks it should should take you. And further, um, we also are starting to see a lot more information come through on diet breaks and periods at maintenance. So that, um, you know, seven days of maintenance and if you incorporate multiple uh, breaks throughout the course of that contest prep, um, you're more likely to mitigate some of those um, lean body mass losses and the slowing of metabolism. So, you know, you're adding in weeks and weeks and weeks um, to kind of help with that. But, you know, I often will argue you've got to take into consideration the individual because science can show us one thing and, you know, a continuous diet versus a diet that's got uh, diet breaks um, is not going to yield the same positive outcomes. We're probably going to see less fat loss, less total body weight loss and more lean body mass loss in a continuous style of diet. Um, so why wouldn't you do the other way? But now incorporating those breaks, we're doubling the time frame really to do the diet. So mentally that's fatiguing. If you've got a career and a family and X, Y, Z that you're trying to do, um, it's not always practical. And I think sometimes people, particularly with eating disorders um, or have had a past um, you know, negative relationship with food, incorporating diet breaks can actually be incredibly triggering if you haven't done the work to determine what causes you to binge eat. And for so many of us, it is really an emotional um, response. And it is somebody that hasn't developed good coping uh, tools to manage their emotions. So if you're somebody that does live a really stressful life and you've got lots of responsibilities, you're probably going to be getting hit with stress and anxiety like all day, every day. So if you don't know how to, um, you know, incorporate uh, good positive coping um, tools, then it's that that period where we get to take our calories back up and have a bit of a breather um, can be really, really difficult because it's like you've opened the floodgates to calories and a lot of folks really have a hard time um, managing uh, their uh, food intake because they don't know how to moderate. They're just not skilled at that. Yeah, I can imagine that if you're in a caloric deficit and then trying to convince someone to do a diet break mm-hmm. um, of going back to maintenance calories, mm-hmm. it's probably easy for that maintenance to be get out of, out of control and turn into a binge mm-hmm. for those Absolutely. two weeks. And I think, um, you know, when we, when we do take a diet break, um, typically we try to reintroduce carbohydrates, um, especially in the situation where we've got, um, you know, competitors or athletes that are doing a lot of resistance training and that's primarily like a glycolytic sport. So you want to reintroduce those carbs so that they can replenish, they can recover from their workouts well. Um, there's also a correlation there with leptin as well. So it can help to mitigate some of that hunger over, you know, a, especially a seven-day diet break. Uh, can lead them to feeling a whole lot better. 
Um, but if you don't tell somebody, hey, you know, we're going back to maintenance calories, um, but that's actually regardless of, you know, how much body fat, um, you know, change is going to happen, we're going to see an increase in weight on the scale because when we reintroduce uh, carbs, we've got, you know, increases in muscle glycogen storage. Now we've got more water um, and that can be, you know, quite a, like a significant number for some people. And again, depending on how, how much lean body mass they have, um, you know, the bigger the body, uh, the greater the percentage that number goes up. And if they're not aware of some of these things, um, just seeing that increased scale weight, that alone is enough to trigger somebody to just have a meltdown. And they're like, oh my God, my weight's gone back up. Like, this is not good. She's given me too many calories. Like, I'm, I'm stuffed. And then that spirals the stress. They eat emotionally. And now the cycle of binge eating, you know, has begun. And it does end up, you know, getting in the way of prep if it happens frequently. So it's a tough, um, a tough thing to manage. And I think, you know, as a coach, you've got to be kind of aware and on the lookout for, you know, some of the tendencies and um, the verbiage uh, and, you know, belief systems that people hold to kind of catch it and like educate them before those things happen. As a, as a female, someone dieting down, I'm really curious what happens because obviously women naturally will hold more Mm -hmm. body fat than men. Um, like even at a leaner level, when you diet down for a competition or competition or a contest or a show and your body fat gets very low, mm-hmm. how does it affect you as a, as a woman? <laughs> so many ways. Um, I think we can look at it from like a physiological perspective and a psychological perspective. So physiologically, um, the first thing that kind of springs to mind for me is uh, like the increased hunger. And I think a lot of people, when they start dieting, it's like always a surprise that they're so hungry. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, this is a normal response. You know, as you lose um, body fat, you know, I guess leptin, uh, our primary um, appetite regulating hormone that is primarily produced in our um, adipose tissues. So when you lose fat, now we're starting to see increases in hunger. And that 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 is really tough. And I think um, I'm a foodie. So to have to say no to a lot of food, that's always, that's really tough. Um, I think at the same time, we're starting to see other hormonal changes and shifts. So decreases in testosterone, uh, decreases in estrogen, uh, thyroid hormones, specifically T3, you know, and they're all involved in helping to regulate metabolism. Uh, and you just start to feel crappy. So like your energy's down. Um, and of course, over the course of a competition, um, my performance will start to decrease. So if I know, um, roughly what my, you know, one rep maxes are for a squat and a deadlift and a bench press. It's probably about three quarters of the way through, um, you know, five weeks out from a show. That's about the the time when I start to see like performance decrements because I've lost some lean body masses, that association now where I've, you know, I've, I've lost some muscle and now it's starting to impact my performance. So, that's, uh, I guess, one of the the challenging things too. As a competitive person, you, the last thing you want to see is your weight selection starting mm. to go down. Um, I also think um, uh, sleep starts to become impaired. Um, it's difficult to fall asleep, and then you're far easily um, more. Sorry, you're awoken far more easily. So, and we also know that uh, even you know a thirty minute. Um, 
difference or a shift in your circadian rhythm from when we go to bed and your normal wake time, um, that impacts our appetite regulating hormones. So if you're having a hard time falling asleep, um, maybe you do finally get to sleep and then you wake up at your normal time, but just that shift by 30 minutes um, may actually give you significantly um, lower leptin levels. So now your ability to adhere to your diet um, is even like harder. So you're battling a lot of those types of things, which are really um, just frustrating because you're trying to perform well. Um, and then the mood disturbances. So I'm somebody that's pretty chill. I don't argue a whole lot. I tend to just, you know, be, be quiet until I'm not. But, you know, irritation, um, you know, aggression, um, short fuse, man. Like when you're hungry, it's like your body's survival mode um, really kicks in. Like you've got no libido. So if you've got a husband or a partner when you're trying to prep, you just <laughs> say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really tough thing to kind of manage. So there's, I think a lot of people look at the, the positives on social media. And I know like when I started, there was nobody talking about any of those things. And you kind of go through it and then you think you're this weirdo. Um, but then over time, like the more you read and look into the literature, it's like, oh yeah, okay, these are actually very normal symptoms of dieting. And, you know, the leaner you get, uh, it makes sense. So it's tough when you have to manage, you know, all of that, those changes with normal life, especially even if you're a business owner and my husband and I, we've got you know, three or four different companies. We have two children. His eldest is autistic. Um, so we've got so many different things that you have uh, responsibilities for. And then you've got these other things that are just kind of creeping up over time. So it does require a lot of um, communication, uh, setting expectations at the beginning, and I guess a lot of conversations <laughs> during that prep to make sure that it all works. Is that why the thought of retirement from competing is... Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I mean, I've been doing this now since 2015 and I I was really hopeful actually that this last competition was going to be my last. I wanted to kind of go out with a, another world title. I've got two at the moment and I'd love a third uh, and it is in a different federation. So I will probably go back and do it again next year. But I think my passion is almost uh, fizzled out. And I think part of it is because I've recovered from that disorder. Mm -hmm. So I was terrified in this last competition that I wouldn't be able to do it because to me, I looked at all of those preps and thought, wow, like the only reason that I was able to get to that, um, you know, level of conditioning was because I've got this like major, you know, disruption up here it's telling me that the only way you are a valuable individual is by being lean and you will do what it takes to, to get there. So now that that's not really something that uh, enters my mind, my passion for bodybuilding has almost kind of faded away because I feel like, you know, there's so many other things in life that are so much more valuable and that bring me happiness and you know, I think the older we get, we start to recognize the things that are important to us. And for me, you know, social connections, feeling of community um, and belonging and spirituality and, you know, family, business, there's so many things that I think now um, are way more pressing than, you know, having a really good looking physique, you know? Yeah. So the I still work with a lot of these people, but I'm really trying to bring together um, nutrition and exercise science and like mental health. And there still seems to be quite a big gap 
particularly in the bodybuilding space. So I felt like a bit of a hypocrite in the last couple of years because like to my audience, I talk a lot about um, you know, health at every size, you know, how to give compliments without just giving somebody a physical compliment. Um, you know, let's talk about body positivity and how to improve your self-image and, you know, all the practical strategies to make those or improve those things in life. Yet here I was, you know, still getting back on stage. So a lot of people kind of said, well, why are you still doing that if you think that you're recovered? And I had to really think about it. But I think now, number one, it's just it's a competition that I want to win. But the second thing was to stay in the industry, to be an advocate for the people that are suffering in silence, that don't have a place to go, that think that, you know, there's something wrong with them or that they can never get through it. Because I know there was a period of time for me where I just, I didn't know whether I would ever be able to shake it. I remember sitting like in my bathroom floor crying and desperately like praying that I would get through this and that I, I didn't want to live anymore because it was taking over my life. Like my quality of life was so terrible. Like I know like on the surface you can look at somebody and go, well, yeah, what are you talking about? They're, you know, very successful in business. Oh, they've got like a great life and a good supports around them. But like the things that go on, go on inside your own mind um, were, ah, oh, it's it's really sad. I, I think back to what I used to say to myself or think about that. Um, and I would like to be able to help people get past that and realize that there is hope. Through coaching? Yeah, through coaching and still staying present in the industry because I don't know that anyone else will. It's just going to be coaches that are very physique focused. It's about aesthetics that perhaps haven't done the, the work themselves, um, like the self-development and, um, you know, they're not self-aware enough to recognise that they could be fueling something that is really uh, unhealthy and there's more ways to, you know, manage, uh, I guess, whatever it is the individual's wanting to get out of it than just, you know, restricting calories and um, excessive exercise. And when you grow up sporty, like... Pushing myself and going hard was easy. It's like that was guaranteed. I know I could do that so well. So I never questioned my ability to like do the work. Like I would do 600 metre, sorry, um, six 300 metre sprints at like my track training and you would be throwing up at the end and then you'd go and do like five 200s and you'd throw up again. Like there was no, never a doubt in my mind that I didn't have like the physical discipline to do something. Um, but often the hardest work, I think, is the psychological work and to actually change your habits and change your character. Um, and it takes a long time. Like the research is very clear, like with some of the cognitive behavioural therapies, it is about 60 days daily of repeating a, a thought, repeating um, a, a, a mindset before it starts to, you know, trickle down into our, you know, responses to, you know, stimulus in our life, to our um, behaviours and then our habits. So yeah, the mental work is very difficult. It's very slow. And I don't know anyone else that's actually currently focusing on both of those things um, to the degree that, you know, our team is. So I'll probably stick around in the bodybuilding industry for a little while. Yeah. It's interesting that we call it like the health and fitness industry mm. because people like to categorize them as, as they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at professional athletes at their peak performance, 
or a competitor on stage, their fitness is at a all-time high. Mm -hmm. Maybe their physique looks the best or they're running their fast 800-meter sprint on a track for the Olympics, mm -hmm. but their health is probably at an all-time low. And there's very rare an occasion that an athlete is optimized health and optimized peak performance. Mm -hmm. so I think trying to bridge that gap between health and fitness, health and performance, there's a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the, the industry is moving towards that direction as people are getting injured or sick mm -hmm. or passing away and dying. Like there's a lot that's pointing to the direction of how do we bridge that gap between health and performance? Yeah, there's a massive gap in the literature, to be honest. Um, I, I've considered and probably will actually step back from the work that I'm actively doing sometime here in the near future to go back and do a PhD in this. Um, particularly, like my interest is having suffered with depression for such a long time um, and only very recently having kind of stumbled across some uh, systematic reviews that are looking at like psychedelic drugs um, and uh, I guess a whole different way of treating like mental illness um, and hearing and seeing some of the case studies even where, you know, people have been um, completely non-responsive to, you know, drug intervention, completely non-responsive to, um, you know, therapy, um, like CBT therapy. Um, but if we compare some of these things together um, with some of these types of drugs, particularly, I'm not sure whether you are familiar uh, with, there was a, a Netflix documentary actually that came out very recently um, called How to Change Your Mind. Um, and I guess they kind of looked at uh, LSD, psilocybin, which is the um, active chemical in mushrooms, mm -hmm. um, uh, the MDMA, and a whole host of other different um, compounds. Um, but the their effects on mental health and literally changing somebody's outlook on life from the point of being suicidal to, you know, absolutely like if they were to do one of the subjective score systems for mental health or depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, they're basically symptom-free after, you know, just a handful of treatments. But I think context is really important. Like the environment in which that is done, I think, is incredibly important. You know, you're in a, um, a safe uh, setting where you're with a therapist to kind of unlock some of those, um, you know, belief systems that we've built up over years about ourselves and um, then having the ability to kind of talk openly about how, how one's life might look free of all of that. So um, that's definitely something that I would like to look further into um, as, a, as a, a means of helping treat people with depression and other mental health. Yeah, I know it's popular in the, the military veteran mm -hmm. community. Yep, for PTSD. For yep. PTSD, um, psychedelic, yep. uh, medical intervention. Mm -hmm. I think it, it, partly it's, there is this sig stigma with, society as soon as you say psychedelic mm -hmm. before you even provide context they're like oh i think of hippies in the 70s yeah people, yeah. people go to that like <laughs> illegal illegal but if it's helping people it's i've talked to so many veterans who have gone on multiple combat deployments nothing has helped and they've gone into one of these interventions and it's changed their life literally saved their life mm -hmm. So it's just breaking that stigma for people, which comes with education. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that I'm kind of disappointed about, honestly, and growing up in Australia, there just wasn't a whole lot of um, like a curriculum on drugs. I mean, I remember going to school grade seven through 10, we had 
like our physical education class and part of that, like there was a unit at some point where we talked about, you know, these are drugs that are going to kill you. But they didn't really kind of go into the the studies, which, you know, now somebody that really appreciates being able to read in depth, like let's look at the the pros and the cons. It's not always mm-hmm. just one-sided. So, yes, there are several risks to drugs, of course, but, you know, not building or integrating that into, um, you know, the education system to at least inform people of how they work and, you know, how it can be dangerous. But then also here are these other things that, you know, in this setting, it can be incredibly beneficial. Um, So, yeah, I think being able to incorporate that for uh, a different mental health would be incredible. One of the things I did want to touch on, and I'm sure you experience this a lot with with clients who who are competing and who want to lose weight, I know it's one of the common questions we get on social media is in regards to like, say someone comes to you and they still have a lot of body fat to lose Mm -hmm. to get back into the shape they want to be. However, they have crash dieted for the last year or two and their metabolism has reached like its floor. How do they come back from that? It's tough. It's really tough because I think a lot of those people are kind of at their lowest of lows uh, mentally, like how they feel about themselves. Their confidence is low. Um, their, you know, perception of their body is incredibly negative. So to tell somebody, you know what, before we even consider like losing body fat, um, if I told you we've actually got to take a six-month break where we're not even going to think about body fat loss or calorie restriction, um, how do you feel? And the answer is never positive. So I can imagine. <laughs> the, the number of people that I think can kind of sign up to, you know, do coaching, uh, whether it's me or our team, um, that we turn away because they've come to us, you know, with this idea that, okay, they're going to help me lose weight. And we are, you know, very much a, a company that preaches, you know, honesty, integrity, evidence-based. Um, we will say very clearly, like, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Like, there's nowhere for you to go. Like, I can't take your calories down anymore or you're already doing X amount of exercise. Like, there's nothing else that you could do right now to to lose more body fat. We have to consider the alternative intervention, which is recovery diet or a reverse diet um, to give your time, to give your metabolism time to, to recover. Uh, and then we may even hang out there for a little while at maintenance to give your body a break, to go through the necessary processes of resistance training to build up your lean body mass. And that in turn is going to drive up your basal metabolic rate, which if you've got a high basal metabolic rate, now you can eat more. So I think that's a really scary and daunting um, uh, process for a lot of people. And I would say 50% of folks that I've worked with over my career um, probably only make it to the halfway point of a reverse diet, like a true you know, we are trying to fight 50 years of somebody, you know, crash dieting. Um, so, yeah, the, the process really is being honest and open, setting the expectations for how long a reverse diet looks like, um, you know, what our what our goals might be. And we'll often kind of work in very much with a client-centred approach where we say, what is the maximum amount of body weight you would feel comfortable regaining if we do this process? And most of them are very unrealistic about what they want. And it might be, oh, one or, one or two pounds max. But, you know, when you point out to them over time that you can, if you if you have the ability to have some, you know, discipline right now and some cognitive restraint, 
uh, and to sit with that little bit of discomfort of being at a higher body fat percentage for just a few more months. What have I told you in two years' time, if we repeat this process of dieting, reversing, dieting, reversing, that you're going to be 25, 30 pounds lighter uh, and you're going to be eating, you know, maybe 50% more calories than you currently are now. Like how, how does that feel? So I think um, kind of providing a bit of a trajectory um, and we like to do forecasting for our clients. So we'll, sa- we'll say to them, here's your body weight uh, and here's what you will potentially be, you know, if we did, if we worked on this for two years through these, these cycles of dieting and reverse dieting. And I think that gives them hope. But, you know, if you, if you don't paint that out to somebody, most of us are very focused on the now. You know, they have a very uh, high level of recency, um, which is essentially um, you, are, you have a very difficult time thinking about something in the future that could benefit you because you're so focused on what it is right now that feels uncomfortable. So... Uh, there's only a handful of people I can say, and uh, my husband Lane is one of them who has very low level of recency. He's totally good with, you know, giving up um, or sacrificing, I don't know, it could be 12 months of his favourite food <laughs> if he knew that for the rest of his life that's all he would eat. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it's just it's not built or it's not ingrained in humans, particularly now that everything is so instant, you know, we're so uh, used to getting like instant gratification. So... It's a hard process and I think to try and win somebody over that's completely raw um, to the evidence-based field of nutrition and exercise science is really tough. Uh, It's not sexy. And I think over time, like you just have to build that trust um, and that's when we start to see the results. And it's truly incredible what you see after two to three years of going through that process. But... um, a lot of people will never do it. They just, they'll live their entire life gaining and losing the same 10 pounds. And it's sad. It's really sad. I'm sure it's like the last thing people expect to hear is, I'm going to sign up to lose weight with this coach. Mm. Hey, first in these next six months, we're going to gain weight, mm-hmm. then to lose weight. What is it like? What does a metabolism actually like look like? What's happening in the body at that point mm-hmm. that it's not allowing you to lose mm-hmm. any more weight? Is it just almost trained? at a certain caloric or energy intake that this is all we need mm-hmm. to maintain this current level, even though if it's, if it's overweight. Yeah, so the body's um, self-defense system is incredibly robust. So over time, if somebody is restricting calories, um, you know, for a, a significant period of time, uh, what ends up happening is we start to see um, not only decreases in lean body mass because without uh, a sufficient or an adequate amount of calories, um, you're not providing yourself with the substrates to, you know, to initiate any new muscle growth. And in fact, it starts to decrease over time. So we've got losses of lean body mass. Uh, we're seeing uh, changes in somebody's NEAT, their non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, and then we're also seeing decreases in their um, non-exercise um uh, non-exercise uh, activity. So we can look at people's, um, I guess, occupational exercise and then the exercise that they're doing, you know, in the gym or with whatever their chosen sport is. And over time, um, due to some of those um, like adaptations that are taking place, you know, under the situational circumstances of restricted calories, um, all of those things are slowing. We're becoming more and more efficient. So 
for, you know, what was, you know, a one hour bike ride, let's say you went to do a spin class. And when you first started, um, maybe you started your diet and your watch estimated you to burn, I don't know, five or 600 calories, perhaps if you were going at a modest pace. Um, once you've been dieting for, you know, several months and you're restricting calories, with those adaptations that are taking place, that same one hour spin class, you may actually only be burning, you know, two or 300 calories now. Part of that is because, you know, as you've lost weight, you've got less lean body mass, which is going to require less energy to execute the same, you know, per unit of time, energy spent per unit of time. Um, but we've just got that adaptation. Um, and it seems to be, you know, pretty, um, the way that I would describe it is, when you're looking to try and lose more weight, we can cut calories, sure, or we could add uh, more exercise. But it, it gets to this point of diminishing returns where I could say to a client, all right, I want you to do another 30 minutes of walking, um, you know, per week. And it may actually have a very negligible impact on their total weekly energy expenditure because they've become so efficient at that activity, so efficient at walking especially, that it doesn't really make a difference to their weight loss anymore. So I guess we've got a lot of, um, you know, changes physiologically and that's partly driven by changes in our hormones. Like I mentioned before, we've got, you know, testosterone uh, lowering, we've got thyroid hormone, T3. Um, uh, there's a host of um, mechanisms and it's, a, it's an interesting hormonal milieu that really puts us in a position where it's difficult to lose any more weight and we're almost primed to regain body fat. So one of the things um, that I have seen in some of the literature is something called um, adipocyte, um, uh, what's the term that I'm looking for? It's basically like division of adipose cells. So when we get to a point where we can no longer diet anymore, um, we're extremely hungry, we've reached this point where you've got hyperphagia, which is the desire to eat more than the body really requires. Um if we eat a large amount of calories in a very short period of time, and this is very common in bodybuilders or any kind of um, setting where you've done a very extreme diet, um, when you eat a lot of those calories, what we actually think happens, and I think this is probably, uh, we're going to need a lot more research on this, and I'm just speaking kind of anecdotally based on a few, a handful of studies, um, but what we think happens is that there's uh, this flux of energy that comes in, puts pressure on the adipocyte, like the cellular matrix of our fat cells, uh, and it causes those fat cells to actually divide. So now we've got more fat cells, a greater number of fat cells, and once we have those, we don't believe that you can reduce them unless you went through some kind of you know surgical cosmetic procedure where you get rid of them. So... Then when we binge eat after our, you know, diet's over because we've gone so extreme, we've now got greater potential to store more body fat. So if you previously, let's say you've got um, um, th the first time you've dieted, you did that, um, you've only got a certain number of fat cells to, you know, store that, uh, that energy. Over time, if you do that repeatedly, now you've got more and more and more fat cells and that's why we see people starting to gain more and more body fat and they end up kind of exceeding their, you know, baseline body weight. It's like body fat overshooting. So we're in a really tough position, I think, you know, in the world that we live because everything is so focused on food. 
um, you know, socialising. It we're we're really set up to fail. <laughs> it makes it really hard. How fast does it happen with the fat cells splitting mm-hmm. and dividing? It probably depends largely upon the total amount of energy that's being consumed. Um, there are no studies in humans that actually look at this. The study or the paper that I'm referencing is actually in rats. Um, but we can assume that maybe something similar is happening. Um, I would love to do that research. <laughs> so I, I do think that the greater the energy intake that's um, coming in is probably going to relate to how much um, or how many more of those fat cells we're actually creating. They start as like pre-adipocytes and then they become fully matured adipocytes and they just grow and grow and grow. So it's really made me consider like when I'm doing my reverse diet that I have to stay switched on. So like the diet doesn't end when the diet is over. The diet ends probably eight weeks after as I've reversed myself out um, to make sure that I'm not putting on unnecessary amounts of body fat. Because if you do finish a diet when you're in this really compromised state hormonally um, and psychologically, if you overeat and an excessive amount of calories, you do run risk of putting on um, a very uncomfortable amount of body fat in a very short period of time. So that's something that I have done poorly in my early days. And I now end up committing like an extra eight weeks to that whole process so that I do have the time to taper off, you know, my training and taper back, you know, my calories in. That's like when you see someone finish. I've had friends that finished bodybuilding shows this past year. Mm -hmm. After the show's over, they go nuts and they binge and they gain like 25 pounds Mm -hmm. in that week afterwards. Yep. It's like, I'm like, you just spent the last 16 weeks trying (laughs) to lose the weight you just put back on and five days. It's really scary. Um, And I mean, just kind of having a better understanding and appreciation for how our body actually is, um, you know, it's like a sponge at the end of a comp. So when people say like, how much body fat can you really put on in like a day? And I'm like, well, if you eat a lot of calories, you're probably going to store a lot of that. Now, granted, you're going to have like for every, uh, I don't know, one gram of uh, carbohydrate that's stored as glycogen, you're also going to get a couple of meals of water and there's going to be a lot of water weight and glycogen. But my word, if you ate, you know, 20,000 calories over a five-day period as a female and that's three times your normal, you know, weekly average or something like that, you are going to put on a ton of body fat. Um, and you're also risking increasing your fat cell number if you do it in a very close period of time because of the fat cell um, separation. This past three years, I've been in a pretty big endurance block. Mm-hmm. I went from an Ironman prep wow. into a marathon prep, back into an Ironman prep, into a 100-mile race prep, into a 100-mile race prep, into a marathon prep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Six events. Uh in like the last three years, maybe even less than that. And what I found through that is people were always asking, you must always be starving. In the beginning, I was. Towards the end of that the three years, I really was never hungry. My body just became so used to, well, this is what your new daily energy expenditure is. Mm-hmm. And I found that as that time went on, my weight didn't necessarily change, but my energy intake required was less. Mm -hmm. So my last race was May 29th and now it's almost September 1st, right? Mm -hmm. I, my energy 
expenditure is lower. I'm not running nearly as much. I'm strength training more, but my appetite is skyrocketing again. So I'm almost, I'm almost seeing that effect directly from mm -hmm. lowering my energy expenditure. I feel night and day. I mean, I feel so good. I feel strong again. But now I'm seeing that I'm hungry all the time again. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at some of the research in uh, reverse dieting, and it kind of um, nicely follows what you've just described there, but there is a big lag time in your hormones' ability to recover. So even when we see, you know, elite athletes um, go into a reverse after, you know, a long period of, you know, hard training and or calorie restriction, they can return to their previous or baseline uh, body fat levels and even though their leptin um, uh, has uh, recovered, sorry, I say that again, even though their body fat has been recovered, we see a lag in their leptin recovering. So, which is really strange because you would assume that with a reintroduction of body fat, that their leptin levels go back to normal. And we, it's, we just don't see it. It can be six months or more uh, before we actually see some changes in um, those specific hormones and that can then, you know, help with your satiety and hunger. So it kind of that aligns with what you've just described and also lots of adaptation too. So it's really normal to see, you know, ultra elite, you know, endurance um, athletes and uh, Ironmen, Ironwomen, uh, despite the amount of output they're doing for their training and what their daily energy requirements should be on paper, seemingly their, their actual intake is significantly less. Mm -hmm. And it's due to that adaptation. It's like the body just becomes very efficient at the thing that you are doing a lot of. And I think when I actually first started seeing some of this research, it was in endurance athletes. It wasn't in the bodybuilding community, but now we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, coming through in, in that field. But yeah. Do you work with any endurance athletes? Not at the moment, no. <laughs> One thing I find with a lot of endurance athletes is... Many of them are under fueling mm -hmm. and it wrecks their workouts. Mm -hmm. uh, more women than men. I've trained with a lot of women and men mm -hmm. the past couple of years, but they'll go on these big workouts, like 20 mile workouts with no fuel, no carbohydrates, mm -hmm. no electrolytes the day of or, or the night prior. And they're just wreaking havoc on their body. Mm. I've always been someone who like, if I'm going into a big workout, I'm fueling up for that bad boy. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably a differences in perception from men to women too. I know a lot of women um, that are in that sport have probably at some point suffered with some kind of body dysmorphia or, um, you know, there's a general concern or they're conscientious of their physique. So uh, I have worked with a number of uh, women that have done Iron Woman um, and they've all uh, admitted, you know, they were chronically under eating. They don't know. They look back and reflect on their training mm -hmm. and are like, wow, you know, I just wasn't eating enough. Like, and now they're in a different sport and they're like, I wish that I knew what I knew now about how to fuel adequately because I can't help but think how much better my performance would have been if I actually just ate more. So, yeah, there's so much value in, you know, learning about, you know, the constituents of foods and, what is an appropriate amount of calories to be eating uh, based on your lean body mass and how much activity you're doing. In fact, we've got a really lovely table that kind of summarizes that um, in our reverse dieting guide, which uh, outlines like several different categories or weight categories um, as lean body mass. And then it, um, it also gives you categories of activity. So uh, I think at the lowest end for um, a female, for instance, 
uh, 30 calories per kilogram of lean body mass um, is like the minimum cutoff. Anything less than that, then you're under eating. Like that's low calorie intake. Um, so for the people that I'm working with, particularly some of the endurance people, and not that I've had anybody recently, but we would be trying to get them up to say 50 or 55 calories per kilogram of lean body mass to know that they are really adequately, you know, consuming enough um, energy for their sport. Mm. Do you, uh, when you're working with athletes who are, who are dieting for a competition or a contest, and you know, we talked about diet breaks and um, for over a, a long extended period of time, mm -hmm. Do you incorporate these one-day refeeds into your your clients' protocols? Not really. I think I kind of shifted away from, well, more to the point, just that term in general. I work a lot with calorie cycling. Um, so, you know, if we've got somebody that is doing, you know, five really hard, um, you know, training sessions, I might um, shift majority of their, you know, carbohydrates, um, you know, to those training days. And then on their non-training days, I will, you know, drop their carbohydrate intake down a little bit. So it's really just the concept of calorie cycling. Um, but if we know we're going to a block of overreaching, whether it's for bodybuilding or in the case of like an endurance athlete where they know they're really ramping up all of their distances or we've got to start pushing, you know, for, for faster times, um, I probably would during that period look to increase their calories a little bit um, to give them some more uh, energy. And there have been a couple of uh, papers that have come out um, specifically looking at um, people in bodybuilding um, and resistance training that there are now some differences in, um, I guess, glucose use in the different muscle fibre types. So between fi uh, type 1 fibres and type 2 fibres, um, they seem to kind of deplete at different rates when we're uh, performing exercise. So... I traditionally was somebody that would kind of spread out my um, intake in a way that favoured my social weekends. So, you know, I'd train Monday to Friday, I'd kind of, I'd get by just okay and I didn't necessarily feel like my performance was, you know, down, but that would allow me to have, you know, a couple of drinks with some friends, I could eat what I wanted and, you know, my seven-day calorie averages, it's good. But it actually, you know, seeing some of this information coming out where we do deplete uh, a lot more of our type 2 fibres when we do resistance training, uh, it actually made me think that when I'm dieting and competing, I probably really need to have some more of those carbohydrates available. Otherwise, it will start to impact my performance, um, you know, the further into that contest prep I go. So, um that's certainly been something that I have shifted, um, you know, my mindset and how I now, you know, encourage clients to to look at their dietary intakes, um, you know, when they are going through uh, either, you know, a period of overreaching or progressive overload or they're, you know, trying to cut weight for either a sport or um, uh, for an aesthetic sport like bodybuilding. So you're saying we, we do deplete type 2 mm -hmm. muscle fiber glycogen mm -hmm. faster than type 1. Mm-hmm. And at what rate, like say I'm going to the gym and I'm doing a, a, a back day with heavy deadlifts, mm -hmm. am I going to deplete my type 2 muscle fibers during that workout? Again, it probably t depends on what your baseline uh, glycogen stores were because if you ask me that when you're at maintenance um, in an off-season or whether you're at the end of a you know really grueling diet or a fat loss phase, um, your baseline glycogen levels are going to be very different. Like... At the bottom end, like for me, when I'm a week out from stage, um, I'm probably not 
there's probably no glycogen in my muscle tissue. It's literally just what I'm eating. That meal is what's now fueling that session. And then I'm back to being on empty. So it's a difficult question to answer. Mm. But I would say I, if I were you, I would probably look to prioritize a greater percentage of your carbohydrates uh, either before or the morning of that training session um, just to make sure. But I would recommend that at, for the most part, if you are, you know, very lean, a lean individual, where you don't have a lot of those body fat stores um, to kind of call upon for the provision of energy, or um, if you're or have been going through a, a grueling calorie deficit um, when you're not getting a lot of, you know, dietary carbohydrate coming in and, you know, your glycogen stores are starting to lower. Does that have you change your athletes and clients' training timing as they get deeper into a prep? So say... I'm three weeks out from a show. Mm -hmm. Typically, I would train in the morning fasted. Do I now shift training to the afternoon so I have some carbs in me for those workouts? Yeah, absolutely. But again, I think some people are very um, accustomed to training at a certain time of the day. Um, again, if we look at some of the studies, um, traditionally, training in the evening actually tends to be uh, or to, to yield better performance outcomes. But if I mean, you're, I, can, I can attest to that. I feel better in the evening. Right. Well, you've got two or three meals, you know, to, yeah. and some, some food to feel the training. But, you know, there's other people and I'm one of these people that I can't stand training on a full stomach. I feel sick. I'll get nauseous if I eat the wrong thing as somebody with IBS. It's just the end of my workout. I feel gross. So I've always trained in the morning, at least for the last 10 years. So if I went to try and train at the end of the day, that shift in itself may actually be more detrimental than um, just staying where I was. So I think if you're somebody that, you know, already trains in the afternoon, awesome. <laughs> you're kind of already winning. Um, but it might be something worth experimenting with. If you traditionally train in the mornings, maybe try to work, you know, over a series of weeks, kind of give yourself some time to adapt to the change in training time. You might like to move that your regular workout to the afternoon to facilitate a little bit more you know, time to get some meals in. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's probably going to be very subjective from person to person. Yeah. My best workouts are probably at 4 PM, mm -hmm. three meals in me. Then mm -hmm. that, that last meal at like 1.30, 2 PM, I feel my strong, the best pumps, mm -hmm. feel my strongest. I train a lot in the morning, like first thing, just because of timing, especially mm -hmm. with a newborn, yep. wake up, train, fasted, but evening, afternoon, feel my strongest. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I've never noticed a major difference personally training, like resistance training and lifting, whether I, I've done multiple powerlifting meets too, where I've trained morning and evening. I didn't see a huge difference. But high intensity interval training, now that's a different story. So I recently got a Peloton. And again, this is N of one. It's just personal anecdote. I don't know whether there's anything, anything there to support this, but um, I would do the same couple of rides on my Peloton. It was just a 20 minute or a 30 minute. And, you know, you can kind of see what calories are being equated for during that time. And it's always just an estimate and probably overestimating for the most part. But um, I would do it at eight o'clock in the morning. And then a couple of times just by way of, you know, how my day panned out, I got called into a few meetings in the morning, um, diffusing a few fires, whatever. I've gone in and trained and done that same class, um, you know, in the afternoon significantly better performance in the afternoon in the afternoon and you know i and it's been consistent too it's not like just once or twice i've noticed it probably a dozen times so yeah it makes me think you know the more glycolytic which you know thinking about a high intensity you know ride if you're pushing wow 
um, maybe that actually is something that um, has more of an impact than something that is a little bit more aerobic in nature. Do you know what I mean? Like the yeah. glycolytic makes the difference. It's interesting because for my last marathon preps, all my workouts have been 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. for these high intensity, like mm-hmm. big workouts. I mean, we're not, we're not talking like max effort, um, but faster paces for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what they would have been in the afternoon with some carbs in. Mm. Do you, now you're training outdoors or indoors? Outdoors. See, I think that there's probably, again, a spectrum. And I know for me, somebody that enjoys the heat, but I don't like to train in the heat <laughs> because it, it can and it's shown it impacts performance. Oh, 100%, there's like all these yeah. other variables that you've got to consider as well. It's like, again, the science can say, yep, heat has been shown to negatively impact performance if you're not, you know, adapted to training in heat. But, you know, if you do what we were just talking about, save your meals until, sorry, save your training until the afternoon, do the high glycolytic sport, the hit, maybe you'd get a better performance. But let's add the element of, okay, it's now 100 degrees outside and you're going to go and do, you know, a 30-mile ride or something and then a run. You'd probably question that. So yeah. you've got to look at all the other things that might potentially interfere or sleep as well. You know, there's, there's many things. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's really hard to put yourself in a, a study and control one variable <laughs> at a time Yep. when there's so many variables going on. Mm-hmm. Unless you do like single leg study. I've seen quite a few where it's like one leg's getting this tra- treatment and then this leg's getting that treatment and you can see. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few for hypertrophy particularly, yeah. So there was one that was looking at eccentric movements um, and then the other was just, you know, your standard, standard movement, two, one, two tempo. Um, there's been some, um, I guess, that are looking at uh, isolation movements versus compound. They've done one leg with the isolation, equating for volume versus not. So, yeah, there's a lot of really cool, uh, neat studies that, um, you know, look at single legs. So you are your own control, which is kind of cool. Yeah, but then you end up at the end of it with Jacked two... legs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't be volunteering for that study. I'm saying they're, they're out there, but I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you have like two different size legs. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's like... There's a lot to come back from that one. Yeah, and I, I think I actually uh, was discussing recently one on calf hypertrophy and um, the different, you've seen people probably do the pigeon toe, a neutral stance, and then toes out. Um, so the pigeon toe, guys, don't worry about doing that. It was not good, but there was um, a small but significant difference between you know feet neutral and then toes facing out. But they did the same thing. One foot did one treatment, one did the other. <laughs> So uh, for people that are already struggling with um, calf differences, it's differences in size, uh, I, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> I just saw this this funny meme online and it was like this split screen and it was a guy's calves on the, the right and a guy's calves on the left. And the right is like this 45-year-old man who doesn't ever train. Mm-hmm. He, was, well, he was wearing like, these white New Balance shoes and his mm-hmm. calves were just massive. Mm-hmm. And you had the guy on the left who trains calves every day. Like, every day <laughs> I feel like grow. I saw that meme recently too. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. <laughs> well, Holly, I, uh, I really appreciate the insight into, uh, into competing, but also more importantly, the, the vulnerability and sharing the story of disordered eating and I know it's out there, especially in the competing space, mm-hmm. um, bodybuilding space, and the endurance space. Like I've seen it, I've seen it in mm-hmm. all those spectrums, and I think it only helps when people talk about it and share their story stories because it helps people know one they're not alone, and two there's a path to mm-hmm. recovery. So I appreciate you for sharing that. Thank you. It's been awesome to talk. <laughs> well, next time we will share a karaoke. 
of Shallow. Absolutely. Uh, I didn't know my competition was previously on Idol and The Voice. <laughs> so I'm actually glad that I didn't sing outside there when the guys were trying to get me to sing in front of you because I have a professional here in the building. Hey, I wouldn't call me a professional, but I do enjoy it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to if you enjoyed it. It helps us to grow and reach more people with the intent of changing lives through the Go One More mindset. If you are ready to take your health and performance to the next level, head over to bpnsubs.com to take the first step.